0: Uh, good morning and welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you here fellowshipping with us today. I'm going to be reading from Genesis. And if you would stand with me as I read. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. and Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, you know, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Well, good morning again, Bethel.
1: All right, well, like Todd said, this is um, the beginning of, of a week of emphasis on the sanctity of human life. Uh, we'll actually spend some some extra time on Wednesday night in our prayer meeting um, praying about those concerns. Some churches, I think, are celebrating we're honoring it next Sunday, some this Sunday, but uh, we, can, we can focus on it not just this week, but all year long. Um, and I think this is somewhere where the church really needs to uh, be really clear that our convictions, our beliefs are so much different than the narrative that is so oftentimes um, propagated in the world around us in medical schools even, um, as we are going to look specifically to the issue of abortion some. Uh, So just one story that caught my attention a while ago, it was um, told by a Dr. Agnew of UCAL School of Medicine um, in LA. He said this, he said, one way of catching class attention is to ask what medical students would give, what advice medical students would give when presented with the following family history. The father has syphilis, the mother tuberculosis. They've already had four children. The first is blind, the second died, the third is deaf and dumb, and the fourth has tuberculosis. The mother is pregnant with her fifth child, and the parents are willing to have an abortion should you so decide. So what's the typical narrative in our world around us? Um, Lots of the people that you rub shoulders with every day, the stuff that we hear all around us. He went on and said, assuming there aren't too many Catholics in the class, you will usually find a majority in favor of abortion. And at that point, he would congratulate the class on their decision to abort, and then tell them that they had just murdered Beethoven. So we need to make sure that we take our cues, and we listen to the narrative of Scripture with its values rather than imbibing them from the world around us. So, one of the key places um, that in the Bible that talks about the sanctity of human life is Psalm 139. Um, familiar territory for many of us, maybe, but oftentimes what happens is we just kind of parachute into verses. 13 to 16, about being fearfully and wonderfully made, and then we get out of there fast before David starts saying some really weird stuff toward the end. So we're going to actually look at the whole psalm, um, and we're not going to be able to overturn every rock, but um, if you wouldn't mind turning there, I'm going to read the psalm, and then we'll dive in. Psalm 139. What page is that in the Pew Bible? If you say it again. 521. In case you don't have a Bible with you, you could turn to page 521 and follow along. Psalm 139, a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. how vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than the sand. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me. O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh God, I pray that you would please help us now, help us to understand your word. We need your help. And help us not only to understand your word, but to take it to heart and to humbly receive what you have to say to each one of us individually. How you want to change us, how you want to correct us, how you want to encourage us. Help us to be receptive to that and soft before you. So help me to make it clear and make it uh, understandable how this ancient text has such relevant contemporary application. And I pray that we would all respond in faith to what you have to say to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we need God's word to shape our minds. Um, We need to think God's thoughts after him. Like I said, there's a narrative in our culture, but we need to actually be shaped by the narrative of Scripture, um, what it says about life and its value. And this applies much, broad, much more broadly than only issues of abortion. So we're not only going to focus on pro-life convictions. Um, you'll see that it has broader application. It's a whole worldview that is present in this psalm. So don't just think narrowly. That's one of the applications of of this chapter, but it's much more broad in its application. So um, we don't have the screen this week, but there's an outline in your bulletin if if that's helpful to you. Um, The first point is verses 1 to 6, the knowledge of God. He knows, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before, to wor- before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me, which is actually kind of a hand cupped over to protect. It's a gentle protective image. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So we start out with this psalm, and David doesn't just say, The divine being is omniscient. He says, Actually, you, Yahweh, the name of God, you know everything. You know everything about me. So he's not just declaring a proposition about God, he is talking to his God, Yahweh in a very personal way. In fact, um, it's kind of unfortunate that we English translations have gotten into this um, pattern of translating Yahweh, the Lord's name, as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Um, let me read you a brief little quote from Alec Motir. He says, The divine name Yahweh has been obscured by the mistaken English convention of representing the name as the Lord. The significance of that name was revealed to Moses, Exodus 3, remember, who should I say sent me? It's I am who I am, the self-existent one. This is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's his name. That's who he is. So the significance of that name was revealed to Moses. A totally false sense of reverence later said the name is too holy for us to use. And the custom was introduced of representing it as the Lord. No, no, he says. He has granted us the privilege, and we should learn belatedly to live in the benefit of it. Hebrew has two main nouns for God. There is the plural Elohim, God in the fullness of the divine attributes, and the singular El. But there is only one name. God is what he is. Yahweh is Who he is. So think about it. It's intended to be more personal. God wants you to be on a first name basis, we could say, with him. That's amazing. So, oh, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. Or Psalm 23, it's not just the Lord is my shepherd, it's Yahweh is my shepherd. I know his name. So, David is actually teaching us to personalize theology, truth about God. I mean, have you ever heard, or maybe I've heard this so often, people pray and it's so mechanical, formulaic and impersonal, they don't talk to anybody like that. It's almost as if they're not communicating with a person. It's not the way David comes across here as he's giving us a window into his prayer life, his relationship with his God. So do we know God? Do we want to know God? David's got some, this is a beautiful model for us here. And God wants us to know his name. He wants us to know him. And he allows us, he wants us to call him by name, not just by a title. The titles are important, the titles, titings, <laughs> titles are meaningful. But he also gives us his name because he wants us to have this intimate relationship with him. So imagine you have this very honorable judge of a high court. You might say your honor. You should, right? But what if that judge says, oh, please call me by name? That's a little tiny picture on such a lower level of what God is doing, and he is so infinitely greater than that judge. So the personalness is that much more precious. So David is acknowledging God in a very personal way. He's not only acknowledging Yahweh's omniscience, he's praising it. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. Just blows me away to think of all that God knows. He is in awe of God. He's keenly aware of God's greatness and his smallness. And so we would do well to actually follow in David's footsteps here. We would do well to bless God and remind ourselves of the glory of God and the implications of those truths for our lives personally. I mean, how often do you do this? Just, I don't do this enough. And I'm not talking about some like, you should do this more and check off the right you know boxes and jump through the right hoops. I'm not talking about some rote mechanical thing, but rather a thoughtful, I am so prone to live with myself as the center of the universe. I need to look up and see that God is the center of the universe in all of his greatness and glory. I mean, how easy is it for us to just kind of like run into prayer, you know, before a meal, you know, just this rote thing, maybe before bed we fall asleep, fire off the list, move on. And we wonder why our problem seems so big and God seems so small and distant. It is really easy to live as if God doesn't know or see. And and when, even though we might say we believe he's omniscient, we're actually living practically kind of like atheists. And what ends up happening is we really only live a certain way when certain people are watching. Because the people have gotten bigger than God. Right? So you work better when the boss is watching. Or you act in a certain way when your parent is watching, or a friend is there, or a coworker, or a client, because they see. Or we talk one way at home, but another way when we're around people at church. We can also live as if we can get away with things as if no one sees, you know, cutting corner on our, corners on our taxes, unethical business practices. Do you see how that is practical atheism? It's like God doesn't know. It's like he doesn't see. He's really small. Or even the way that we speak to our spouses or our children or a waitress or a coworker, or what we look at on the internet when no one's around. No one, except God. I mean, just take speech as an example. Jesus said, "I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak." Ugh. I mean, there's enough reason right there to feel your intense need for the gospel for the forgiving grace of Jesus, the blood of Jesus to cover your sins and for honesty with God about your sin, my sin, and to be so thankful for promises like 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins, if we're honest about our mess, our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, we can so easily live as if God isn't there, as if he doesn't know or doesn't see. If God's knowledge of us isn't real to us, we do things and look at things and say things that we would never do or look at or say if, say, your spouse was next to you, or your community group leader was next to you, or your boss was next to you. And yet God is always with us. He always sees. He always knows. And we can often live like he doesn't even exist. So this passage speaks of the very personal implications of God's omniscience. Bible doesn't do abstract theology. It doesn't do merely theoretical theology. It's not just a systematic theology book with a bunch of propositions in it. All theology is practical and moral and personal with implications for us as individuals and us as communities. So we would do so well, like just very practically speaking, we would do so well to rehearse reality like David is here and praise God for his attributes and their implications. It's so easy to live like this, and no wonder God seems small. But what if we intentionally pondered the omniscience of God and its implications and we started praising him for who he is? we start living like this. Do you think he might be a bit bigger in our view and it might impact how we live? So let's bring, let's bring God into our thoughts, our decisions, our discussions, our troubles, our struggles. I mean, he's there anyway. So in your life on a daily, weekly basis, is he welcome and honored or is, does he feel more like an intruder or an interruption or a threat? So I hope we don't want to live like practical atheists. We want to live and really live in light of the implications of God, who He is, His omniscience. He knows, so we would do well to remember that and live wide open in relationship with Him in honest communication. So He knows, but He's also there. Okay, No matter where we go, no matter where we are, But once again, David makes it really personal. David is still speaking to Yahweh. He's not saying this about him merely. So second point, starting in verse 7. So if his knowledge knows no bounds, I don't know, you might want to run and hide because you're afraid that he knows some things that you're ashamed of. Well, good luck trying to run and hide. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? That's his personal active presence. Where shall I flee from your presence? Literally, it's his face. Where shall I flee from your face? He sees all. It's his personal presence. And then David unpacks the utter impossibility of escaping Yahweh's presence by means of some beautiful poetic means here. Look at verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, Sheol, you are there. So even if we could escape this physical dimension and enter the spirit world, of course Yahweh's there. Heavens, the dead, the realm of the dead. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, which direction would that be? Come on, anybody awake? East, there we go. And dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. If you're in Palestine, where's the sea? Which direction? West the uttermost parts of the sea, the far west. Do you see the totality speaks to the fact that there's just nowhere to run and hide. So even if we could fly to the eastern edges of the world, what am I doing? Eastern edges of the world, um, or the furthest western regions, even there, verse 10, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. This is good news. If If we're in relationship with God, we don't have to fear His presence. It's actually a comfort. His hand will lead us no matter where we are. His right hand will hold us. That's the hand of His power. And then David makes clear that there's no cover of darkness with Yahweh. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So, I don't know if you have this song coming to mind, but nowhere to run to, baby, nowhere to hide. And we need to personalize this. This is reality, and we need it to be real to us, real in our minds, real in our hearts, not just some distant concept. So what are your temptations de jour? Like, What's kind of on the front burner in the temptation realm for you lately? What if you preached this to yourself? What if you threw this in that temptation's face and ran to Yahweh, your God, your refuge, your protector, your helper, instead of trying to hide and get away with stuff that only enslaves and chokes your soul? So let me just ask you, does God's omniscience Does God's omnipresence feel to you like a threat or a comfort? One commentary I read made a great point. This this psalm is a celebration of God's invasion of our privacy. And then this guy writes, In classes on the psalms, I always ask students whether they think these verses are good news or bad news. And they always divide between people who see them as good news, people who see them as bad news, and people who perceptively discern that it depends on who you are. There is inherent in the psalm a recognition of this ambiguity, which is a recurrent feature of the Scriptures. While they often do their work on us by being crystal clear in their meaning, on other occasions they do their work by being elusive and requiring us to work out what we would mean by them. Instead of our reading them, they read us. The way we read this psalm reveals something to us about ourselves and God and invites us to ask why we read it the way we do and to try the other reading. Did you track with that? So this psalm, if you read God's presence as a threat... That's reading you. It's not the nature of God's character. But I think many of us have, or we do at times, especially when we've got something to hide. We perceive his presence more like a threat. Um, I read again the poem, The Hound of Heaven, this week by Francis Thompson. Um, This is not a poem for oral environment, like the whole thing. You'd really have to read it. I would encourage you to. It's worth the work um, to kind of, it's really powerful. So I'm just going to read the first um, stanza. And yeah, this is powerful. Hopefully this isn't how we view God. But the the way that the the poem ends is really powerful. So again, I'd encourage you you to just find it online. I fled him. Down the nights and down the days I fled him down the arches of the years I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the mist of tears I hid from him and under running laughter upvisted hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed followed after But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. And a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. So if we betray Yahweh and run, trying to get away from him, whether by pleasure or by whatever, those things will betray us because they're not a true refuge. So we should not run away from God. So if there's something right now that you're holding on to, or if there's something that you're hiding, that you're afraid to bring out of the light, this is what's going on. And we need to stop and let this psalm speak to us. He is not one to run, to, run from. You can't run from him. So I hope that's not how you're relating to God, or if you are, you'll actually stop this morning and realize that his pursuit of you is not to crush you and condemn you, but to rescue you. Yahweh is not a killer. The hound of heaven is not after you to kill you, except maybe to kill in you all that is killing you so that you can really live and live eternally with him. okay. So when we run from him, we're actually running from true life and love and peace and joy and freedom. So this Yahweh, this God is so pro-life, so pro-life that he sent his son to die in our place for our runaway child rebellion. All of it. Jesus died to pay the penalty for all that stuff. All the stuff that we've tried to hide in the dark. All the things that we've said and done and thought that we hope never see the light of day. And whoever trusts this Jesus to save them, they will not perish, but have everlasting life. So why would you want to run from him? He knew it all. He knows it all. He still came and died. And so when we wander, we are wandering away from true life, and peace, and joy, and freedom. So if this is his character, if, if he searches us and knows our thoughts and our ways, if he hems us in even and lays his hand upon us, even if it's painful in the short term, it's because he loves us, he knows what's best for us, and he wants to correct us and protect us, not make us feel like he's locking us up in some prison. So he knows, he's there, and then David goes on in verses 13 to 18 to give Living proof of what he said about Yahweh's omniscience and omnipresence. So, this is this really well known passage. Um, and so, really, in the context of the chapter of the psalm, it provides an example, a telling, conspicuous example that the most private, dark, unknown places are not dark. They're not hidden from the Lord. And not only does he know what happens in the darkness of the womb, he is not just present there. He's actively at work there. So look at these verbs. I mean, this is so sweet. Verbs of personal involvement, God's personal involvement in the development of human person. Verse 13, for you formed me. He he formed you formed my inward parts. You, again, David is speaking to God, not just about him. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Or you could translate that, awesomely wonderful. So how much better is this than being the result of some blind biological processes? We are personally made by a personal Creator, I wonder if we really believe that deep down in our bones. Perhaps you don't feel so wonderfully made. Again, we can be practical atheists, or we can let the Bible shape how we view reality. I wonder if your body image issues, how you look, or your weaknesses, your limitations, How you're wired, those things can actually get in the way of a close relationship with God and others. You may need to spend some time in this passage in prayer and pour out your heart to the one who formed you and knitted you with the good and the bad, with the strengths and the limitations. So you can say, wonderful are your works, the rest of verse 14. My soul knows it very well. I think there's lots of people. It's not just, you know, certain parts. Men and women alike can be just plagued by what they see in the mirror. But have you ever known someone with Down syndrome whom the medical community would have advised... Abortion? yet who is this bright light of joy and life in his or her family's life, maybe your life as well? Is it easy to acknowledge that on their behalf, but not on yours, with your limitations, or your issues, or how you look? Do you think maybe God had a reason for it all? Do you think he could be trusted? Maybe he wants you to be be comfortable in your own skin, and perhaps you could be the same bright light of joy in life to others, even if you're not as smart or beautiful or athletic or talented as so-and-so. We don't want to be practical atheists, do we? We want a comprehensive pro-life worldview, the life that God gives us. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately, I made, 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 God made us intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written by God, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So God knows David's thoughts, verses 1 to 4, but even more precious and amazing are God's thoughts toward David." Again, this blows him away, and he praises God. Look at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. This is not some, like, self-esteem message. I'm awesome. Look in the mirror. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And, you know, gosh darn it, people like you or whatever. That's not the point. It's we do have dignity and worth because we're made in the image of God. By God, you are not an afterthought. No matter what your parents said, no matter what your mom or dad may have said, you're not an afterthought. So God's thoughts toward, I mean, this is like, I never think about this. I'm helped by this passage. God's thoughts toward you are innumerable. I mean, how many times do you think he's forgotten about you? Or at least it feels like it, right? You might want to meditate on this passage and let it sink in. And then it says, it's, you know, there's some discussion on the meaning of this last sentence, but I awake and I'm still with you. If David means, when he says, I awake, what he meant back in Psalm 17, listen to that verse, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness in the future, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with, with your likeness. This would be a reference to resurrection. So all the way from birth through death to resurrection. Wouldn't that be appropriate that God knows and he's involved all the way from our the first moment of conception all the way until resurrection? So clearly here in this, this psalm, we, hear, we see here God's valuation of life and his infinite involvement in all of life. And yet, so here we focus on this week of sanctity of human life, thousands of human beings are murdered right here in our little state each year. Over 2,500 per day in our country. and Virtually all of them have a beating heart. To quote one summary, at eight weeks, the baby is sucking his thumb, recoiling in response to pain, responding to sound, all the organs are present, the brain is functioning, the heart is pumping, the liver is making blood cells, the kidneys are cleaning fluids, and there is a fingerprint. Virtually all abortions happen later than this date. Little, defenseless, vulnerable human beings are dismembered and sucked out of the womb every day little arms, little hands, little legs, dismembered, eyes, nose, mouth, bowels, heart. There are the remains of thousands of human babies in the trash outside of sterile clinics each year labeled medical waste. We cannot be indifferent to this. This conviction, this worldview does not ever mean that we are cold or cruel to those who have had abortions. We denounce abortion, and in this country, as genocide that it is, but we also can offer hope and compassion and forgiveness from God to those who have had abortions or who have been complicit in an abortion. So it's actually the gospel of Jesus that can provide real hope whether a person is considering abortion or has already had one. I love this quote by Russell Moore. He said, the devil works in two ways. Follow this. By deception, you shall not surely die. And by accusation, Revelation 12, who accuses the brothers day and night before our God. The devil wishes to assure some people that there's no need for repentance and others that there's no hope for mercy. Some people are deceived into thinking that they're too good for the gospel, while others are accused into thinking that they're too bad for the gospel, and then this. No one is more pro-choice than the devil on the way into the abortion clinic, and no one is more pro-life than the devil on the way out of the abortion clinic. The gospel of Jesus Christ tears down both strategies. So dull the conscience on the way in, afflict the conscience on the way out. And chances are, you're rubbing shoulders regularly with women or men who are either weighing this option or are plagued by guilt. And maybe there's some of you in here this morning. The gospel is for you. This God who wants you to know him is for you. And the Lord needs to open our eyes as we scatter throughout the week to see the people around us, to love them intentionally and proactively, and to pray that open doors for relationships that would provide the context to minister to people in these situations and give them hope and how to know forgiveness and cleansing. So as the church, we have got to live out our pro-life conviction in holistic and sacrificially loving ways. So the Church of Jesus, this is not just an issue about abortion, church of Jesus has and must display a different worldview, a comprehensively pro-life worldview. So we welcome babies. The church should welcome babies with downs or whatever abnormality may be found. The church of Jesus is filled with families who choose to adopt children with disabilities or adopt unwanted babies. And when they do so, they are affirming The worldview of Psalm 139 and putting their money where their mouth is. It's beautiful. This also has bearing on end-of-life concerns and ethics of death with dignity and physician-assisted death. Those are the more accepted terms now, apparently. No longer physician-assisted suicide. That's not euphemistic enough. It has bearing on how we care for the elderly and disabled. So it's an opportunity. We, the church, have an opportunity to be salt and light in a selfish, don't-slow-me-down, grossly utilitarian age in which we live. So the question is, are you firmly with Yahweh on this one? Are you, you know, especially with all the political polarization, are you ashamed to identify yourself as pro-life? Because you don't want guilt by association. You don't want to appear as narrow-minded, one-issue voter. You don't want to get caught on your heels, maybe. Maybe it's just like feeling unprepared, caught on your heels. I won't be able to answer questions and challenges. Or maybe we're just too selfish to be much more than indifferent. So may that not be the case. We None of us can do everything, but we can all pray, and we can get involved in Small or bigger ways, depending on our capacity and situations. So now, where the psalm goes next is not some kind of one-to-one response to pro-choice advocates. Please hear me say that, okay? It's more a response consistent with a comprehensive pro-life worldview. And it's one that we don't often think about, but we need to. So point number four, who is on the Lord's side, verses 19 to 22. David says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, which that phrase implies a lack of respect for life and a disregard for justice and righteousness, okay? So he says, O men of blood, depart from me. This is David speaking as the king with zeal for God the king. He is a man after God's own heart. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Yahweh? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Are these verses in your Bible? Like, I mean the practical, real one that you're living according to. You may have some other verses highlighted and underlined, but have you ever underlined these ones? Have you ever wrestled with what in the world are these ones doing in here? These verses are actually seriously pro-life, ironically. If you are indifferent to the Planned Parenthood sale of baby parts, are you on the Lord's side? If that doesn't raise any anger... If you were indifferent, if you were, let's say, do you remember this, to the little shop of abortion horrors that was found in Philly, Dr. Kermit Gosnell, several years ago, if you're indifferent to that, how could you be on the Lord's side? Love for God and neighbor means that you must be opposed to and even hate evil. This is not, let's clarify very quickly, this is not spiteful vengeance, This is not assassinating abortion doctors or bombing clinics. Absolutely not. This is a zeal for God's name and a concern for the weak and vulnerable that issues forth in prayer. Do you see? David's not taking matters into his own hands. He is praying to the one, vengeance isn't mine. That's yours. But would you please set things to rights There are so many people getting chewed up in these powerful gears. Do something about it. So righteous anger, righteous anger, has zeal for God and love for others at heart. It actually has life at its heart. And so again, the Bible needs to shape us, not the other way around. We shape the Bible. Ooh, that's kind of unpalatable so we just cut that part out. We just ignore it. So you can, again, expand this a bit more broadly. How could you be pro-life if you're passive in the face of killers, if they're threatening weak and vulnerable people? You're not pro-kids if you sit idly by if someone tries to kidnap and molest your child. Love is protective. I mean, mama bear can be fierce and even violent in its protectiveness, right? And here's the good news. God will not allow evil and injustice and violence and murder to to fill his world forever. So here's this expanded pro-life worldview. It's actually anti-violence and anti-injustice in a comprehensive way where we are saying, your kingdom come. We are looking forward to the day when bloodthirsty people, people with a disregard for life and justice, have a heyday. And again, it's not just the pre-born vulnerable, but those who treat life cheaply due to age or race or ethnicity or religious zeal, quote unquote. And again, this actually reflects the character of God. David is a man after God's own heart. So, ISIS. What if, what if you lived in an area where there were ISIS threatening you and your family. Well, how does this square with Jesus loving your enemies? Aren't they two sides of the same coin? You could pray that God would have mercy on them, stop them in their tracks and convert them. If not, please shut them down. It's righteous anger and love working at the same time. I pray that way for Kim Jong-un. Lord, save that guy or kill him because of the horrible damage that he does to his people. I'm not God. I'm not going to make that decision. I wouldn't try to take that into my own hands, but I'm praying that God would do it for the sake of people who are starving and suffering. So, it's both and. And so, isn't it appropriate that this psalm ends? Be angry and do not sin, basically, to use language from the New Testament. So David doesn't only point the finger out there for judgment to fall on the wicked. He looks in here. As soon as that anger starts to rise, he says, I need to be careful here. I need to be careful. And I need to ask God to purify my heart because this is dangerous territory search me o oh god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting there's no pride there there's a humble caution there and care you know what this is this is the old testament log and speck it's beautiful like, I want to look in first, Lord. I know how easily my righteous anger could get really ugly, and I could justify it. So I don't know where you're at with this as far as the comprehensive pro-life worldview. You may need, you may be very prone to anger, and you, you dive into the culture wars, and you don't care what anybody thinks, and maybe you need that anger to be purified because there's too much self and pride in it. Maybe, though, you need righteous anger to be produced a bit more because there's too much indifference to the evil in the world, and you love to just kind of, like, Mary had a little lamb, just avoid it and ignore it, pretend it isn't there, hope it goes away. God knows. (laughs) The psalm says it really clearly. So do you know? We need to know. So we land here in these final verses and we ask for God's help. Search me, help me know, help me be honest with myself and with you because I want to land firmly on the Lord's side with a comprehensive pro-life worldview, firmly with God's truth underneath my feet, positioning myself there so that I can protect and advocate for the weak and defenseless and vulnerable. May God give us help and strength to do so. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you have overcome our ugly selfishness and cruelty we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have been selfish. We have had disregard for life and righteousness and justice. And you were not indifferent to our plight. And you didn't crush us in that. We also were weak and vulnerable and helpless spiritually in that state. And you were merciful and took the blow on yourself that we deserve, and you rescued us where we were helpless. Help us see your beautiful, amazingly gracious character and make yourself so real to us who you are, that the gospel of grace, the glory of your omniscience and omnipresence and your love and mercy would be so real to us that we would stand with you, that we would stand by you and that we would be moved by you to move toward those who are shaking their fists in your face as enemies and doing violence to others and also move toward those who are weak and vulnerable to protect and defend the defenseless. Lord, please shape us by your word and help us speak to us and help us to listen and respond.